in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Today we continue our look in the book of Isaiah. Today we're looking specifically at chapter 45, verses 1 to 7. We've talked quite a bit about the background of Isaiah in previous podcasts, with Isaiah addressing um, both, well, mostly the, the men of Judah, the kingdom of Israel had already fallen in the 722 BC, and he already predicts the fall of Judah, which would happen around 586, 87 BC as well. But when you talk about the falling of Israel, you're talking about the destruction of the temple and then the the exile, or, or, or is that part of um, Judah being conquered? It is um, for Israel, the first one, mm-hmm. in 722 B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, that is being taken away by, um, I believe, is it the Assyrians? Is that correct at that point in time? And then 586, uh, the Babylonians come um, under Cyrus, and then they, they conquer Judah, the second kingdom, which includes Jerusalem and the temple. Okay. Um, so at that point in time, the kingdom had been split in two between uh, Judah and Israel. Um, and this was after Solomon. Uh, God actually t- told Solomon that due to uh, some of the, the wickedness that he was doing, um, God would go ahead and separate the kingdoms into the two. It's such a, such a long and complicated history. Um, uh, are you familiar with this this history of, of Jerusalem? That uh, uh, it's it's a very thick book. Anyway, I read it before our trip to the Holy Land, and um, my head was spinning just trying to remember all the details of how many times Jerusalem had been conquered and destroyed and rebuilt again. Yes, so many times. Yeah, yeah. And this is the um, I would say initial time you'll see that there's especially in the intertestimonial periods that is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that time frame. You also have a number of power struggles going on that are recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so Israel being overturned uh, again and again. And um, so here in this initial overthrow um, of Jerusalem and the temple, um, Isaiah is predicting this 100 150 years before it actually happens. And we, um, in his book, in verses specifically 40 to 55, he is already predicting ahead of time their exile back from Babylon to, um, uh, to Israel to redeem their own land. So um, here they would go and rebuild both Jerusalem as well as the temple. And 
in the passage that we take a look at uh, today, we're going to take a look at specifically one specific person whom God calls out and names um, by name to be that person who delivers them. Again, this is 100, 150 years before it actually happens. So it's a beautiful prophecy, and it's of Cyrus, um, who we'll get to know a little bit about. In chapter 44, that is the, the chapter leading up to our reading for this coming Sunday, uh, we hear about um, God choosing, why God chooses and redeems Israel. That is to say, he's not redeeming and doing all of this because of what they've done. In fact, I mean, that's why they were destroyed in the first place is because what they didn't do and the things that they did that were contrary to God's will. But God promises to redeem them um, to, uh, because of his word, because of his grace. And he emphasizes that time and time again. Verses 20, uh, this is uh, found in the chapter before chapter 44. He says, uh, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Really, there's, I mean, God's act um, takes precedence before Israel even responds. Um, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but how God um, so often acts for our salvation and then we respond. And in the same way, God promises to bring Israel um, back to the promised land and establish themselves in Jerusalem and the temple there. And then they're to, re to respond by returning to God. Um, so also a little bit later in that um, chapter, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. So he's really declaring who he is, going from this uh, macroscopic you know, ruler over all of the universe um, to more specifically, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will rise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, and this is where we get the first reference to that particular person, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So here, God is predicting through Isaiah um, the restoration of Jerusalem through this one particular person, Cyrus. And I love the way that this is phrased because it's all about God's actions and, and specifically through his words. Um, he repeats uh, three times in the, in the verses that I just said leading up to chapter 25, who says, describing who the Lord is. So, who says of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she shall be built up. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. So there's this repetition of what he says, and it, it really harkens back to Genesis, um, when all God has to do is speak, and the world itself is created. Well, it's an affirmation of the authority of God, too, that... Um... It's, it, I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of Job, you know, who laid the foundations of the earth. And, and, and he just, 
he feels that it's necessary to remind people of that authority. Yes, yep. Remind them of the authority and um, describe the actions that go along with it so that when they see the actions, they know who is doing it. And I mean, this, this comes up in our, in our creeds in church. And when we describe God, we describe almost all of what he has done. God the Father who made, Jesus Christ who came into the world, right? And the Holy Spirit who is at work in the church. All of these are, are very action-based. You know, we could describe God as in the, in the creeds as uh, God who, love, who is loving and patient and kind, but that isn't how we describe him in the creeds. Instead, it's all based off of what God has done. Well, except the purpose of the creeds was was to refute heresies. Cor correct. Okay. I mean, that was yes. The that was the primary purpose of them. They, they do originate in scripture themselves. So I guess uh, some of the books could be used to refute heresies, um, such as Gnosticism. I know that that's one that um, John is typically viewed as writing against. So as well as Juda the Judaizers. So there, you're right, even in scripture, there is this um, refutation against heresy. Who is the author here? Um, Cyrus, uh, this, this beautiful prediction of Cyrus. Um, a lot of people have a hard time grasping that this could possibly be a prophecy, and so a lot or, uh, a lot of scholars will argue that this, that the book of Isaiah wasn't written only by Isaiah, but also by his disciples who following after him wrote this in place after these um, actions took place. So it's not a matter of we can tell from the writing style necessarily that it's uniform enough that, oh, it must all be Isaiah, that there's enough variability in there that that maybe contributes to some of the doubt that he, he authored the whole book. Well, he does, um, in, in th and throughout Isaiah, there are differences in the way that it is written. Um, for example, uh, 1 to 39, um, it's very poetic. Uh, once we get into 40 to 55, this section, it takes a different tone. It isn't as so much poetic, um, but it's a, a prophecy prediction going on. And then afterwards, it returns to the poetry. Um, so. Isaiah is complex in that it does weave through different literary structures, but that isn't uncommon for books to do. Um, a lot of scholars will take that and say, therefore, since it's a different mm -hmm. structure, uh, or since it's a different uh, format of, of literature, it must be, or it gives credence to the fact that Isaiah wasn't the only author as well. So they, they like to use and leverage that, but taken as a whole, Isaiah is this, is this beautiful whole, and throughout tradition we've been handed down, and tradition has it that Isaiah was the, the um, author of the whole book. So um, could it be possible? I mean, perhaps, but according to tradition, I like to believe that it is Isaiah. And really, I think the, the, the bigger issue at stake here is that these scholars are very critical of the Bible, and they don't want to see it as as being prophetic. Oh, that so that is the 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 lens through which those particular scholars are viewing it. 
Most often. Most, okay, okay. most often. Sometimes you'll have some in-betweens um, arguing one way or another, but um, most often it is it is that lens. They're trying to discredit. And so there's a, sure. a little bit of um, they, 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 comes, they come to it skeptically already. Yes, yes. Would you mind um, reading our passage for today? So we begin at, at the beginning of Isaiah 45, the first seven verses. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Here we have uh, Cyrus mentioned by name once again. And this uh, Cyrus is Cyrus II. He's a king of Persia, and they come in and conquer Babylon in 539 BC, approximately. Um, here, Cyrus, after um, defeating Babylon, uh, orders a decree or issues a decree that allows the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And so that's where that, that fulfillment of this prophecy really takes place. Again, uh, 100, 150 years, Isaiah lived 100, 150 years before Cyrus even lived. And what's remarkable is that Isaiah actually names him by name. Yes. Yeah. So specific. And Isaiah is, um, we mentioned this um, before, but Isaiah is oftentimes known as the, um, the fifth gospel because of how vivid of, of prophecies he gives, oftentimes um, of Christ, the, the, the suffering servant, which is actually found throughout um, these, these chapters, uh, the suffering servant versus who redeems Israel versus Israel um, who would be redeemed. Um, but his, his prophecies are so specific that it's just incredible um, that, that one could have such uh, foresight without, you know, one realizing that, you know, this is, this is God at work. He is the one who's, who's done this. It would be a little bit shocking for the listeners to hear that Cyrus was called both his shepherd and his anointed. Um, these were, were terms typically reserved for those from Israel, so kings and priests in Israel. And for God to use this language about a foreigner would have been very shocking. Um, 
here God is going to use them to reestablish um, Israel. And it really emphasizes the point that God is not just the God of Israel, but he is the God of the whole world. He can work not just through the, the kings of Israel, but even kings of Persia, like Cyrus. And very reminiscent when you think about it of what happens in the New Testament with Paul, that of all people that, that he would call to, to be used to spread the, the gospel, it would be this persecutor. Yeah, right. And in that case, um, Paul was converted. What's, what's very unique about this, Cyrus, we don't have any evidence that he was actually converted. Okay. And so God was using him regardless. Um, it's incredible that Saul becomes Paul and you know he's converted and, and God works through him as a Christian, but here we have evidence that God is working through even a, a non-believer. And there's there's yeah, there's many examples of that in scripture actually where he where there's these figures who are agents of God's work, whether they're believers or not, but God uses them as as, as agents. Yes. Um it, we're we're kind of jumping ahead here, but um Verse, uh, verse 7 um, is a beautiful description. It's really the climax of this, of this passage. Um, after calling Cyrus and, and saying that he's going to work through Cyrus um, to bring about restoration for Israel, um, God goes on to say, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Um, that's a, he uses a, a form of a literary device, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a literary nerd, but I wouldn't quite say that. I'm, I'm, I know enough to be dangerous, not an expert in it. Um, but it is an uh, antinomy uh, where he uses contrast to the extremes so anti, you can think of like the, the opposites, right? Sure. So he uses extremes, and God is ruler or creator of both. So we have of light and darkness. And so we have this image of the natural world. But then we, he goes on to say of well-being and calamity. And for us, I think it's hard to grasp that. It's really hard to grasp that God is, you know, the one who is, who is a creator or at least has, a, has some sort of um, act or will inside and through calamity. But here this is, this is more of um, our own daily living. So when, when, when we're suffering, for example, we don't like to think that that is God's doing. But yet um, we're told very explicitly here that God has his hand in that. Um, Luther is, is an expert at this, and um, he, he describes and makes the distinction between alien work and proper work. Have you heard that distinction before? No. no. Oh, okay. So this is um, his, his proper work is according to his nature. It's always to, to love and to save. So he wants to love and to save us, and we see that um, you know, through Christ, um, that is his, his will for us. And yet we live in a broken world. So the question is, how does God work in a broken world? 
a, a world where evil forces are at play, a world where um, sin is at its center, um, where suffering exists, and that's his alien work. That is, he continues, um, he works um, in a way that is foreign to God's own nature and intentions, but he is still sovereign over it. He's, he's at work through it. And I think that's a, a great picture that we have here for Cyrus, who isn't even a believer. Mm-hmm. And we don't have evidence that he converted to a Christianity. And yet, God is still uh, sovereign over that. Um, we don't want to. We we don't want to say that God is the God is the one who brings about evil or is responsible for evil. That's going too far. But certainly, God permits it. Um, this is again something that's very hard for us to grasp and to understand. Um, things that we won't fully comprehend until we are with Him in paradise. Um, but it really does. This passage as a whole really emphasizes that God is. God isn't just another, you know, lowercase g God. In fact, I mean, there, there is really no other lowercase g God. But if he were only responsible for the proper work that, that Luther talks about, he wouldn't be all-powerful. We have a, a term, a, a word for, for God, pantocrator, which is all-powerful. Mm-hmm. So I, we, in English, we say almighty God. Mm-hmm. Um, God is almighty. And for him to be almighty, to be all-powerful, means that he, he has power and authority over all things. Is one of the reasons that he, he had to remind them of this, that, that Isaiah had to remind them of this, was that there was still a lot of pantheism in the culture um, of, of his audience? There... There certainly were many uh, pagan gods at mm-hmm. that time. I'm not sure specifically about pantheism, okay. um, but there was um, before this, uh, before this chapter, in chapter uh, 45, which I read just snippets of, um, God gives this image of, of uh, idol being made, and he really accuses uh, the, the, the idol and idolatry going on um, perhaps in Israel, but also in um, Babylon, where they're being taken out of. Um, and he gives this image of someone who takes a, a, a tree, cuts it down, and takes half of it, creates an idol out of it, carving its you know, mouth and its eyes and nose, and then using the other half for firewood. And which will heat its food, and which he, which that person will get nourishment from. And his critique is that: now, Can you really say that this other piece of the wood is your god? Right. That you have something sacred and something just profane and dispensable um, taken from the same object. Right. From the same object, and at the end of the day, it's that person who created it. And to, to be able to say that um, that that you know that that wood piece that's been carved out is the one who who's going to save the man who can't I mean that wood piece can't even speak can't do anything it's it's only useful for being burned and you know making making food 
you, you can't call to God. So there, there certainly was this attack against paganism mm -hmm. uh, during Isaiah's day. And so here he's, he's definitely taking a statement that, that God is above um, all gods, lowercase g's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thread that he feels, yeah, it's, it's necessary to come back to again and again, just to affirm the sovereignty and the, and the authority of God. Right, yeah. right. Um, there is there is a beautiful um, pattern throughout this text, and that is um, God goes on to describe um, how or why he has chosen Cyrus, and he gives, at the end of the day, three answers for why he has chosen or called Cyrus. The first one is in um, verse 3, and he says, that, that you, Cyrus, may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by, na by your name. And so the, the first one is that Cyrus would know. And that it, for us, we already mentioned that Cyrus, it, there is no evidence that he actually converted. So No, but this would be an indication that, that he's, he's giving him a special revelation, correct? He's giving this, a special understanding to, to Cyrus. He, he does give us yeah. a special understanding, yeah. Yes. So not necessarily for, for belief, but the right. same wasn't, wasn't true for Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Pharaoh at the end said, like, you know, I know that, I know that this is God who is at work. Oh, we opened his eyes. He yes. opened his eyes, yep. And, and yet he did not believe and insisted and pursued after the Israelites. So, I mean, there's, there's another person mm -hmm. whom, you know, God can work through, but... Um, he may not even become a believer in that case. You know, we're fairly confident that Pharaoh never did believe. His heart, his heart was hardened, and he hardened his own heart. Um, so that's the first person who, who um, or first reasoning that he calls Cyrus, is that Cyrus knows himself that it's going to be God who is at work. And then we have this, this second statement in verse, verse 4, um, that God is doing this for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. So Israel itself will know that God is at work. And Israel will be for the sake of redeeming Israel, which God has promised and foretold. So all of that um, is, is another reason why Cyrus is being chosen. So we go from the individual person to the people of Israel, to one more in verse 6, which is that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. In other words, he's saying that if it isn't just for Cyrus, it, it isn't just for Cyrus, and it isn't just for Israel, but it's for all people, that all people may know through this act that the Lord is God and there is none other. So if he's using Cyrus as this, as this agent, um, you, know, you, you said he wasn't, he wasn't a believer, but yet he acknowledges the truth of what Isaiah is saying, that, that, it's, that um, he is that person. He, that is the role that he has been chosen to fulfill. So there's, there is some investment in, in the prophecy on Cyrus's part that, yeah, this is, this is what I have been chosen to do. Yes, yes, the knowledge of it and, and, and going 
about in doing it. Um, there is, interestingly enough, in, in verse 4, we're also told, um, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. So there is this, like, some kind of, like, under, he doesn't quite know God, right? And yet, God knows him. Right. So the order of that is very important. Um, so, like, when does Cyrus know um, God? I don't know if the, if the scripture quite makes it, it clear or if we have knowledge or solid knowledge on when he came to know his plans. Maybe, for example, he, he went and did all of this, and it was only after the fact that he, he reflected and said, oh, the Lord was at work through me. And the, and the words are so carefully chosen. That's, that's an amazing thing about Isaiah, too, is that the way that's phrased, it's just, it's very carefully done. Right, one before the other? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's this beautiful language in... Verse 2 that I'd like to point out, too, um, that is, I will go before you and level the exalted places, um, and I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. This is God speaking um, to Cyrus and to the Israelites, and he's telling them, on, on the one hand, that he's the one who's going to be working through Cyrus. Um, it isn't Cyrus who's doing the heavy lifting, but really... Um, God is the one going to the extent of breaking in pieces the doors of bronze, cutting through the bars of iron. Um, he's smoothing the way for Cyrus to come in and conquer Babylon and to uh, send Israel back to um, Jerusalem to reestablish Jerusalem. And yet the, um, the beautiful thing here is this, this con close connection between um, Israel, or sorry, I... Uh, Cyrus, and there's a statement here, I'll go before you and level the exalted places. That probably brings something um, into mind, something familiar to you um, in the New Testament, Paul. Is that right? Well, right. It's, it's, the, it's the language that we hear when we hear about John the Baptist in Advent, that uh, the valleys will be raised and the mountains be made low. Right, right. Yeah. And the uh, the, there's this, there's this uh, neat comparison between the two because they're both kind of um, going after the same thing. That is to say, um, in, the, in the case of Cyrus, Cyrus is God's instrument to bring Israel back to God's own presence at the temple, to reestablish the temple. So God, that, that's Cyrus. He's his instrument. And then in John the Baptist, he's, he does the same thing. He's, he brings Israel back to God's presence, but it isn't at the temple. It's in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so it, really both of, both of them are functioning in this way. And actually that, that phrase, um, to, to raise up and to, to make low, it's found here for Cyrus, but it's actually found elsewhere in, um, in Isaiah, around, I think, chapter 40, which is more of the explicit quote that, that Luke uses right, for John right. the Baptist. Yeah. So some beautiful parallels there. There is uh, uh, some beautiful also parallels with the uh, gospel passage that we had for uh, this upcoming week. Now, um, I will not be preaching on it, but the passage itself is probably very familiar to you, which is on... Um, um, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. 
usually comes up with it if you're talking about a stewardship message. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, I'll, leave, I'll leave Pastor to, you know, preach that text. <laughs> but what we do have in common here is that uh, God is at work through governments and leaders. Uh, they are God's chosen instruments. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very clear expression of that, that you're right. That, that, um, and, and Luther actually lays it out that way, too, that... Um, and he was very explicit about that, that in some cases you could have an unbeliever that was a very good ruler or leader, but um, um, you have to acknowledge their proper authority there and, and perhaps God is working through them even though they themselves aren't a believer. Right, right. So uh, for today, because, um, because we call our, our podcast... Um, learning about, you know, having liturgical knowledge, not just about hymns, I thought we'd maybe explore a little bit about the early history of the church in terms of worship. And what's fascinating to me when I was doing reading about it is, is how early these patterns of worship had already formed. You know, we think about, well, we, we could go back to the Old Testament and actually um, glean a lot of things about how our patterns of worship evolved from that. that that they gathered together in the synagogue to hear the reading of the word. And so there's many things that we have, have taken on from the Jewish tradition that have just become part of our worship. But if you look at the, um, the, the, post, the post-Christian era, the, the time immediately after the, you know, the disciples and, the, and, and the, um, uh, the, the, the evangelist, we already see that in the second and third century, these patterns of worship were already starting to Form, which you, when you think about it, is remarkably early that that we've had these patterns that we've just inherited uh, for, for centuries, well, and actually almost two two millennia ago. That why would we why would we reject these? Because when you look at it that way, we have this this accumulated wisdom of the ages. Why would we try to, to reinvent that? And that's kind of. Um, you know, a philosophy of, of worship that I think we share with a lot of people that we have this uh, inherited treasury and tradition of the church. Why would we try to reinvent that? Why would we try to make our worship a reinvention of that and do something else? Right. Um, it's, it's inefficient for one reason. If, you, if you're trying to reinvent the whole notion of worship to make it exciting or to make it into entertainment, well, then you might want to ask yourself, well, what really is our purpose here? What, are, what is our goal? And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the, the early Christians were really forced to, to develop that liturgy pretty early on with the uh, destruction of the, the temple. Again, I mean, this is a different time. We mentioned multiple right. times that the temple was de- destroyed, but at that point in time, they had the, the temple rebuilt, and they, they were uh, traveling to Jerusalem for this, for this uh, liturgical practice, but... In, in the 70s AD, when it was destroyed, um, they were kind of on their own and had to, in some ways, create those practices early on. Right, and so they were, they were scattered. Um, I think sometimes we have this own, uh, notion that they were just uh, constantly persecuted, which I think is kind of a common, common misunderstanding. Yes, it was a little bit risky to maybe openly uh, gather for worship, because you didn't know who was who was watching you, or, or you know what the, the civil authorities were 
were thinking about you by doing that. But they, yeah, they were more or less uh, uh, underground, so to speak. And so they had to develop these patterns of worship. Well, um, what I found fascinating is, is in these early patterns of worship, some of the things that were most central to it were um, the, the, the sacrament. The, the, the preface, even the, the words of the preface itself are some of the earliest things that we have uh, in the orders, if you want to call them that, the, the orders that were recorded. Like what is, what is the way we worship that, were, that had actually been documented and recorded? Some of the earliest ones were actually the words of the preface and the things leading up to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which I think says to us as Lutherans, you know, this is good that we finally return to the practice of having the sacrament every week or regularly in the divine service because there was a long time where we didn't. And I think we've, we've returned to re the place we need to be, that that was the most central thing of those, of those early Christians and those early worshipers. Right. If they have that language around the sacrament, it seems like it's, I mean, it really makes a statement of what the Christian life looks like. And they were defining that very early on. And for them to create this, this language around the sacrament, um, to go without the sacrament at this point in time would really be to try to um, create a Christian life that was much different from um, how they defined and saw the Christian life to be back then. Yes, I, and I think kind of what the background is of what you're saying is, is that it, it defines their identity. That that just being a Christian means you're gonna you're you're going to um, gather around this sacrament. That that is going to be a, your very def definition of your identity. That's exactly it. And in fact, um, there was a uh, Clement, the Bishop of Rome, in, in um, AD ninety six. Um, had already kind of laid a lot of this, of this out and had defined the roles within the church, ones that are familiar to us now, that drawing from the Old Testament where you had the high priest and then the priest under that, and then maybe the Levites who were the, the servants in the temple, we have these new layers that you would, would, would call the bishop, and then you would have the, the, um, the pastors underneath them, and then you'd also have the, um, the, he also identified or, or defined the laity, that there was actually this other layer of the, of the laity. And so very early on, we realized that, that there's de very defined roles in the, in, in the church. And then about a century um, later, um, we find um, uh, in Tertullian's writings that um, he felt that in addition to the, the, the words of the preface and the words of the of, of institution, what we call we call the verba, the you know what Christ told us to do, the the the, the blessing of the, of the elements that He told us uh, to do these things. He felt that what was very important was that we have the words of the Lord's Prayer associated with this. And you may have noticed in our worship that that is where it's located. It's, it's night next to the sacrament, where logically you would think, in, in, if you were going to structure a service, and, and we do this in matins and vespers, you, we kind of lump all the prayers together. You know, we have some collects, we maybe have some local petitions, and then the Lord's prayer is right next to it. 
But in the divine service, it's located next to the sacrament. And, and his reason for doing that was the, the very fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That was exactly where okay. my mind jumped to. And perhaps also um, the uh, what does the life of the baptized look like? When, you, when you're baptized, um, it, you say the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. um, this is, you know, early church. And Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father. Our Father. Exactly. It's our. It's not my. Yes. It, it's our. It's this idea of, of corporate worship. Yeah. And, and to, as the baptized, to, to state that, so you, you're, you're praying um, together as the baptized, and you ask for the daily bread, and as the lives of Christians, it being defined uh, in part by receiving the Lord's Supper, seems very natural that that would flow right into communion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that being that being the central act of what we do is is receiving that sacrament. So um, I think we've, as I mentioned earlier, I think we've arrived at I think the right place we need to be as Lutherans now that that the sacrament is is central, even though the preaching of the word. As Lutherans, we place a great emphasis on that, that that is also very important. And the early church saw that too. Those were some of the first, um, if I can use that word, accretions to the liturgy, that you have the sacrament. Well, what else are you going to do? You will have a reading of the scriptures, and that goes back to the Old Testament and to the temple as well. But then you have the teaching. You have it, uh, an exhortation that, that um, you hear the word of God, respond to the word of God. And already, you know, quite early on, the um, if the Christians heard the word of God and rejected it, they were then excluded from the remainder of the service. They were excluded from the prayers and they were excluded from the sacrament. Oh, so is that why we, we would have then um, the proclamation of, I mean, found in both the gospel and uh, scripture as well as the sermon before the Lord's Supper? That, that, that makes, yes, yes, that makes perfect sense that that's how it was structured because you have the exhortation and if you're gonna to choose to reject it, then you're not part of, then you're rejecting the word of God, you're not part of that community and it doesn't make sense for you to partake in the, in, in the sacrament together. There's some um, historical component too of this where um, those who were wanting to um, be baptized, so the catechumens, mm -hmm. um, those who would be going through catechism class in, in today's language, um, they would, they would um, participate in one portion of the service, but not the other. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's, that is my understanding. Okay, and then I think, um, that, so when, where we get mass, um, typically when you think of Mass, you think of the Lord's Supper, or at least a, a service including the Lord's Supper, and it's, uh, it comes from a, a dismissal. Um, so the, there would be at, at some point in the service where they would hear the word, and then they would be dismissed outside of the service because they were not ready yet to receive the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And so there, I, But I, I never associated them, along with the catechumens exiting, would be also those who would, you know, hear the word, reject it, well, you're not going to join us in, in the Lord's Supper today because you reject this, so you also dismiss with those catechumens. 
and it's it, I mean, it, and it's when we talk about I mean, it's a subject that comes up very often um, uh, the, the idea of communion of, of, of close communion you know why do we place an emphasis on this and because it is it is very important you know what you what your beliefs are about that are are very central to your identity as a, as a Christian so we, we we place a great emphasis on it and it's not just that but it's it's how we take the word the word of, of Jesus the words of Jesus very very literally um, and in fact there were some churches that were substituting water for wine in the practice of, of communion but again one of those early church fathers Cyprian he made it a point to say no that's not acceptable because we take we take Christ's words very literally there that it's, it's the cup of wine that this is what we what we are instructed to do in the sacrament. That's very fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, already that that conversation about wine and water, or whether or not water can just be a substitute for wine, is taking place during the time of. Cyprian. Yeah, isn't, isn't that fascinating? Because you know you have churches that well, grape juice is you know it's it's the nearest equivalent. It's fine. Or, or in worst case scenarios, some of those who who say well it doesn't. It doesn't matter what you use as long as you have, you know, something there that is some kind of a symbolic element. Right. Well, um, yeah, to use a terrible pun, you've watered down, you know, what was <laughs> what was very clearly designed uh, in terms of the the, the shack, sacrament that was to be shared, that, right. that sense of community. And just as kind of a um, to end, to end here, what I thought was very interesting is that when you reach the time of Constantinople where Christianity becomes the, the dominant religion or the state religion, uh, uh, in essence, in the, uh, in the fourth century, that when Christians were free to worship publicly, they needed, they needed spaces for that because now they could gather in large numbers. So um, what they did was they adopted the, the um, architectural uh, term of, of the basilica, which is originally a civic space, and it was designed a lot like our churches now, where it was a rectangular space with two or four aisles, and it faced forward, and there was a, a raised area at one end of it. Very much fits the description of most of our churches. It was originally a civic space. Well, now you had you had worship occurring in this space, and so worship changed to adapt to this new space. So where you originally maybe had you gathered together to hear the word in a, in a very you know, limited number, with a limited number of people in a small space, now you have this huge space. What well, opens up all kinds of options for, well, creativity in a way, but how are you going to handle this large space and what are you gonna do with it? And what happened was is we started to add other things to the liturgy instead of having it simply be the reading of the word in the sacrament, now, because you have this big space, you have to get people in and out. And so you have the advent of the, the entrance rites, things that come before you have your hear, the hearing of the word in the sacrament. So um, you, you might look at it as well, traveling music. You need some traveling music for the priests to get in or, or everybody else. And so what they, what they uh, creatively came up with is, well, let's do some psalm singing or 
because the Psalms were the hymnal of the Old Testament and, and certainly the function as the hymnal of the early century church. And so they, they lit upon that as, well, let's sing some Psalms while all this, this motion is going ahead. We tend to use now in our worship, we tend to have maybe a, an entrance hymn or something like that. But Psalms were the original hymns that were used for that. And so the liturgy began to expand at that point. And from that point onwards, um, you have the accretion of other parts of the liturgy, where you add in the Kyrie, uh, the Gloria, the, the Sanctus, all those other things were later additions to the liturgy. But when you go back to the very early church, the very fundamental part of it was the hearing of the word and then the sacrament. Right. It's, it starts with the hearing of the word and the sacrament, and everything is built around that. Right, right. So you can see the origins of that, that that, that was the scaffolding that everything was added onto. And even now, we make a very clear division in the two parts of the service. And I, I think it's a very obvious division, even now in, in, in our worship, in the divine service, that you have the liturgy of the word is everything that becomes comes before the sacrament. And then we have the liturgy of, of the sacrament that, that follows that. Right, yeah. right. The, I, it all happened so early on, too, with the, in the 300s um, AD, when Constantine um, does make Christianity legal mm -hmm. in the Roman Emperor, Empire. Um, that's, I mean, it's still early on in, in history so that you, know, you, you have Christians debating and thinking about these very uh, thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. What do you do with this extra space? And the, and the Psalms seem like they fit so well, too, because a lot of the Psalms, they were used while you journeyed to Jerusalem. Right. If you think of the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, and they have that name because they were sung in, in procession up to the temple. Right. Yeah. And, and in the church, it seems very fitting because, I mean, it, just as they were traveling to the, to the temple, um, to be in, in God's presence. So also in church, that's where we profess the God's presence to be. And if you think about the, um, uh, the Psalms, like right in the numbers of Psalm, I guess 98, 99, 100 in there, um, those are the Psalms, that's where the Venite comes from in, 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 in our Matin service. Uh, it's, it's an invitation to come into worship. That is wonderful, yes. Okay, let's, um, let's continue with our, our litany from daily prayer. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 
Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.